Okay, so this morning we left our, our story with Ruth and Boaz on a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, he has been sleeping up in the field. He and his men are protecting the harvest, the, the barley that they've been working on. <coughs> Remember, food is a big commodity at this time. They're just coming off the back of a famine that has been running for at least... 10 years. Uh, remember Naomi and Elimelech in chapter 1, there was a famine in the land, and so they moved to Moab, which means the famine was there for a while. They spent 10 years in Moab, and then hear that the famine is, is over, and they've moved back, so it's at least 10 years. There are people then who are hungry. They are desperate for food, and uh, they might rather want to steal it than buy it, either out of greed, out of desperation. There's also bandits and, and thieves and gangs and robbers and all the rest of it from surrounding nations watching them. And so it, it's, it, it's important that Boaz is protecting his harvest. He's sleeping, but he is dressed uh, so as to be ready for action in case an attack came. He's taken off his big heavy coat and he's wrapped it around him like a wee bit of a blanket and draped it over himself to keep his, the chill off his feet. But this night he finds that there is a wee bit of a chill. His feet are cold, so he stirs and he um, starts to try and readjust. He kind of is fidgeting and fiddling. And then all of a sudden there's something at his feet and he realizes, oh, that's a head. I guess it'll be better another kick. That's a woman's head. And it turns out then it's, it's Ruth waiting at his feet. Now, this morning we looked at how this was a proposal of sorts. She is proposing marriage. Uh, because ultimately, long story short, for uh, her to invoke the legal request for Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer, to kind of restore the family honor and name and land and titles and all the things that they lost when they went to Moab, she needs to ask him. You can't just forcibly redeem someone against their will. And so the man, the groom-to-be, has to be invited in to come and to redeem. And, and we saw this morning about how this is such an amazing picture of Jesus, that we have someone who loves us, we have someone who has the ability and the desire to redeem us, but at the same time has said, I'm not going to come here and force myself on you. I'm not going to just redeem people against their will. To invoke this opportunity, to make this happen, you have to come and ask for me to redeem you. I'll only come on your invitation. I'm willing, I'm able, but I won't move until you ask. So that took us to, <coughs> excuse me, verse 8 and 9 of uh, chapter 3. And we finished this morning by looking at the symbolism. So let's see then how he responds to her proposal. Verse 10, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So he's a wee bit startled, but he's excited. His reaction is just complete joy. He doesn't say, love, you're only after my money. I can tell. That's why Ruth married me. He doesn't turn around to say, look, I'm not really looking to settle down right now. I've come into a bit of money here. There's a big harvest. I'm kind of happy with just things, how things are in the relationship. Don't push me, woman. Stop trying to define my, our relationship. None of that. Rather, he just let me translate it into the modern day kind of vernacular. He says, Ruth, you just amaze me each and every day. And every time I think I've got you pegged, you just amaze me even more. That's pretty much what they're saying at this point. And so Boaz, he recognizes a couple of things about Ruth. First is that even though she hasn't been about the town for very long, 
even though she spent a lifetime in Moab with all their pagan rituals. Remember Moab did the child sacrifice? That was how they worshipped, by putting children on an altar and sacrificing them. That's how she grew up. And yet she's moved to Israel, she's moved to Bethlehem, and she's doing the right thing. It may all be new to her, it may not all make sense to her, but she's following the rules that God has set out. She's being obedient. Deuteronomy 25, Deuteronomy 28, she's doing it. But Boaz also noticed how she's gone about it. She's gone about her business in a quiet, reserved, gentle manner. She doesn't barge in, crack him on the head and say, right, Bobo, we need to talk here. You have to marry me. We need to get this sorted. We're living in poverty. You got the money. Let's make this thing happen. It doesn't turn around and, and uh, uh, or even in Deuteronomy, what it actually says for, for someone to do is go to the city gates, go where the council meets, go where they, they make the decisions, go where the kind of the, the wise legal heads meet. And you go to them and you say, okay, I'm claiming my right as a kinsman redeemer. I'm claiming, I'm invoking my right under the law. She doesn't do that. She goes privately. She waits for, for him to be awake. She waits for, the, for a private moment and says, would, would you do this? She doesn't demand. She asks. And it's something that does seem strange here. Twice in these verses, and he's done it before in chapter 2, he calls her daughter. It suggests to me that he's a bit older. A lot of people have had different guesses about this. The common theory seems to be that she's mid-twenties, and Boaz is maybe around 50, so there is a bit of an age gap. Um, it would seem that uh, Boaz would be the same sort of age as Elimelech and, and Naomi and some of these older, this, that older generation. And he recognizes us. He calls us and, and he says, look, you could have went after younger men. There have been plenty of younger men, rich men, poor men, all queuing up to have a, 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 to have a shot with you. You're beautiful. You could have had any man in the town you wanted. And yet you're coming to me because you understand how the, the, the system works, how the law works. You could have just said, look, Naomi, forget about you. Forget about the land. Forget about the titles. Forget about all those things. But you're, you're trying to be honorable to, to Naomi. You're being honorable to the people around you. Verse 11, and now my daughter, again that word, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He's saying yes. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, that word worthy is the same word translated virtuous that you get in Proverbs 31. You know that big, raking, long chapter about the virtuous woman? Um, it, it's a passage that I think crushes most women whenever they read it because they read it and it's like Proverbs 31 and it's like she's out, she's buying land, she's making clothes, she's getting up early, she's making uh, breakfast for everyone, she's moving everyone, they're all educated, they're all, and it's like this perfect life and most women, every woman, I think would read it and just say, look, there's no way I could ever do all that. There's no way I could measure up because you read it and you just feel exhausted reading it. You know, it's just like it's a whole chapter of, I can't do that. And yet Proverbs 31 is an encapsulation of a lifetime of work. Not, it's not a day in the life, it's a life in a day. And it's just a picture of different ages and stages of this woman. And it all just kind of builds up a picture, an endeavor of an entire lifetime of work. But here's a wee bit of interesting Bible trivia for you. And here's why I'm bringing it up. Who is the virtuous woman mentioned in Proverbs 31? 
who is it talked about? Is it a vague kind of ethereal kind of concept of a woman? Or is it actually someone? Well, Proverbs 31 verse 1 says, These are the words of King Lemuel, the oracles his mother passed down to him. So Jewish tradition will say that Lemuel was a pseudonym for King Solomon, the wisest of all men. He operated, in, oper, uh, he operated in the business under the name Lemuel. And his mother was Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was retelling Solomon the oral histories of their family and their traditions and what brought them to this point. And so according to Jewish tradition, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is Ruth. That's the theory. And... Um, it's really interesting because the book of Ruth finishes with, with a wedding and a baby. And it's like Proverbs 31 then tells us what happened after that. What, what did their marriage life look like? What did they go on to, to become as a family? So when you finish the book of Ruth, go yourselves and read Proverbs 31 because it just gives you like the, the, the closing scene of their life together. Anyway. Verse 12, and now Boaz is still speaking. He says, okay, yes, it is true that I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. So without getting bogged down in all the legalities and all the stuff, the basic principle here is Ruth has invoked a law saying, you are my Goel, my kinsman redeemer. But Boaz turns around and says, yes, that okay, awesome. But actually, technically, legally, there's someone else before me. You can't skip over this guy. If you're going to do this by claiming a law, you have to go through the right, right of passage. So someone else has first dibs on, on redeeming you. Now, we don't know who this is. We don't know what the connection is. We don't even know what Boaz's connection was to Elimelech. Uh, was Boaz a brother to Elimelech? Was he, was he a cousin? We, we don't know. Um, no, he could have been an older brother, maybe some sprightly 75-year-old that uh, Ruth really didn't want to marry. Maybe they were cousins. We, we, we just don't know. But what we, just, what we do know is that there was someone else who could have stepped in to redeem. It's interesting because I'm tempted to think that it wasn't an obvious link like a brother because I think it was far more obscure because all the direct links perhaps were already married, or I would say, if there was a closer relative, Naomi would have known about it. Naomi would have sent them to, says, well, look, actually, my ex-husband has a brother. Let's go there. there. There's a way we can get around this. There's a way we can make this happen. It doesn't seem to happen. It doesn't seem that she's aware that there is other people about and available. So it seemed that it's maybe slightly more obscure, or perhaps uh, Boaz was married before and his wife passed away while the rest of them were in Moab. We don't really know. And yet Boaz did know. He knew what Naomi did not know. He knew immediately that there was someone else who was closer. So it sounds to me like he's investigated this. He was hoping that this would happen. He is hoping that there's a chance that he and Ruth might be able to get together. That He's hoping that, that this woman that he's just fallen head over heels in love with might ask him to redeem He's done his research. So even when he's woken up in the middle of the night, and I'll be honest, I'm not the most clear on whenever I'm woken up in the middle of the night, 4 a.m., cold, it takes me a minute to get my bearings. Yet as soon as he wakes up, he knows where he stands. He knows the situation. There's, there's wisdom here. 
And so it, it, I think it's just a really beautiful picture of someone who wants to redeem, someone who's itching to try and help because he loves so much. And so he says, look, there, so there is this issue. So remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. I'm, I'm not going to cause a fuss over that. I understand what's happening. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down till the morning. Now, something struck me as I read this. It's this form of communication. We read it, and it doesn't always make sense to us. You know, this kind of, all the favors and gestures in chapter 2, the sort of covering the feet and uncovering the feet. And wouldn't it be easier just to grab a coffee? Wouldn't it be easier just to sit down with your, your solicitor and say, look, here's the situation. Can we thrash out a deal? Can we make this happen here? It seems that you like me, I like you. Can, can we not come to some arrangement? But he understands, Boaz understands exactly how, what, what's happening. He understands what she's looking for. What that says to me is that the communication was good between these two people who loved one another. Boaz and Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, they may not be experts, they may not know each other particularly well, but they love each other, and so they're able to track with each other, they're able to understand what they're saying to each other, because love needs good communication, and love creates good communication. And even when you see between Ruth and Naomi... um, Every time Ruth comes back from the fields, Naomi's in at her, tell me about your day. Tell me about Boaz. Did you see Boaz today? Did he get you into the house? Did you see Boaz? And she wants to know, and they talk into the night. Now, one of the reasons that they're good at communication was, okay, they, are, they were good communicators, but they still didn't have phones or tablets and TVs to distract them. They didn't sit in silence while all in the same room. They didn't do that like so many of our families do now. They didn't sit in silence in their just wee bubble. So the skill set is being developed over time because they had to look into each other. They had to connect each other. And they, they share stories and they talk and they laugh and they sing. Nobody's in a rush away because there's nowhere to rush away to. And so they talk at mealtimes and they talk into the night and they're investing in each other. There's a principle here I think that's important. Mature love. People who really love each other will foster and thrive in an atmosphere of good communication. There are times I'll go into homes and there's a bit of tension for whatever reason, but usually, usually it comes down to people saying, Jeff, would you tell her I understand what she's saying? She's just not understanding what I'm saying. Jeff, would you tell him I understand what he's saying, but he's not understanding what I'm saying. Jeff, would you tell her, I do understand what she's saying, but she doesn't understand what I'm saying. Said, right, okay, listen, we need to stop this. But mature love is fostered in an atmosphere of good communications, relationships. And you know this is true, okay? If you're in a relationship, if you're married, you'll understand. Life can get busy okay? And, and good things, necessary things get in the way. And the skill and time needed to spend in good communication gets pushed aside because we're busy. We're busy. We need to get out to the gym or we need to get out for, to do this run or we need to get out and do this and this. And, and, and the, the one thing that we should be prioritizing gets deprioritized. And instead of spending time carving out beautiful love letters like you used to, or 
big, long texts, sweeping texts. It becomes bullet points of things that you need to get from the spa on your way home. Or, uh, you know, we reminders, you know, make sure you order oil with your ring the insurance company, whatever it happens to be. These are the things that we start our, spend our time ta- saying to each other. See, just because you're talking to each other doesn't mean that you're communicating well. One of the biggest problems in marriages, from what I can see, is the breakdown of good communication. Not just communication, but good communication. People start to feel like strangers under the same roof. They're in bed with someone who they don't really know, that they haven't connected with in a long time. And that, finds it, that makes it difficult because then doubt can set in and uh, mistrust can set in. And then what happens is individualism sets in. So you start thinking, right, well, it's not really about us. It's about, well, I'm going to go do my stuff because I need to get out of the house. She's thinking the same. And you, say, well, I'm gonna, and, and you spend more and more time away from each other. You spend more and more time apart. And, you, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, Jeff, you know, we just drifted apart well no you didn't just drift this has been happening for a long time and it started because the communication was bad but mature love is fostered through good and clear and honest and tender communication now here in verse 13 he says like stay the night I've heard about some people and they try and take this out of uh, context, you know, uh, uh, very, very out of context. They say, oh, stay the night. Well, hey, we know what's going on here. Wait, Boaz, get in there, son. No, 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 a thousand times, no. What he says is, stay where you are. Where is she? She's lying down perpendicular to him at his feet. He says, you stay there. Don't move anywhere. Stay where you are at. Stay there till morning. It's only a few hours away. Get some sleep and we'll sort this out then. We'll sort out all this in the morning. We'll get this other guy sorted out. Please remember, it's not just the two of them cuddled up in a wee barn somewhere. All right, like some really cheesy movie. That's not what's happening. They're at the top of a hill. It's cold. And they're surrounded by armed men who are also sleeping, waiting for an attack to come. Okay? It's not a romantic setting. And besides, if there was a sexual connotation to this, the Hebrew word would be saheb, which would be used instead of the word lahom, which means to lodge. It says, camp out here. Camp out with the rest of the men. And I have to say that, which is sad. It's sad that I have to say it, but I have to say it because some people try to twist the word of God. And it shows as well that there is a, there is a mature relationship here. It is a spiritual relationship. But they've, because they, they've got to the point where they said, yes, she has said, I want you to, I want to marry you. He has said, yes, if we can make that happen, I would love to marry you. Yes, okay, yeah, there, there's someone else who maybe could step in, but I want to marry you. It could have been very easy for her to say, look, love, don't you sit down there. Come on up here and cuddle with me. Winky face emoji or whatever, you know. Come on and cuddle. But actually, there's restraint. They control their urges. Their urges don't control them. Showing restraint is actually a beautiful, beautiful sign of love. Most people miss this completely. But restraint is a beautiful sign of love. A couple of weeks ago, 
we had the family on the glider bus coming out of the city center. And just the time of night it was, oh, on Saturday night, there was a bunch of 12, 13-year-olds who jumped on. And they were bad youths, you know, just sort of just... Uh, they were drinking uh, vodka straight, and the language coming out of them was absolutely blue, and it was just not a nice bus ride, you know, because it doesn't matter, no matter how far away you were from them, you were able to hear everything. But the conversation was going on among them, oh, so-and-so will be there, she'll do this for you. <gasps> Here, he's going to be there, well, will, you, will you go with him, will you do this? And they're trying to sort all this out and match, make everything, and sort of pair everyone off. And it was heartbreaking. Partly because I could see that my daughters were absorbing everything that they were saying. But we need to remind ourselves and our young people and instill in them that love is not just expressed by what you're prepared to do for someone. We get into this habit of saying, well, does he get you flowers? Does he get you chocolate? Does he get you jewelry? Do, 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 does he, do you go out for date night? Do you have, and it's like, well, what do you do? Because that's how you measure love. But love is also shown by what you will not do. I love you too much to defile us. I love God too much to dishonor him. I love myself too much to sin. I care too much about you to allow our relationship to be cheapened. But to talk like that requires good communication. Because maturity is built on good communication and a deep respect for one another. They're not separate. They're woven together. They're woven together. You can't, be, can't say you deeply respect them and there's bad communication. That's not respect. And likewise, you can't have good communication without having that respect. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient, love is kind, love is... It goes on to say, love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Ladies, since I have your attention, ladies, if there is a man in your life who's flirting with you and maybe says, oh, I can't wait to do this. Oh, I can't wait to, to, to be there to kiss you, to hold you or whatever, or you're dating or, or engaged or whatever, and say, oh, I love you so much. I can't wait till we get married. I can't wait, all right, or whatever um, you said. I'm, I'm wearing a microphone. I maybe can't use to say the things that you might say. And you say, well, sure, we're going to get married anyway. why wait or we're engaged anyway it's only just a matter of time if that guy is talking to you like that you are with a man who does not love you sorry to break the news to you he doesn't love you he loves himself he loves what he can get from you but he doesn't love you or at least certainly not the way he ought to love you because what he's saying is I love me I want you, and I want you because I love me, what I can get from me. How mature will his love be for you if he is pressing you to sin because of his sinful heart? Doesn't add up, folks. So we need to instill this in our children and our grandchildren and in each other, that that love is, is, is an expression of the things that we won't do for each other as much as the things that we will do. But let's move on. So 
she lay at his feet until the morning. But arose after one could recognize, before one could recognize another. And they said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Bethlehem's a small town. And small towns are great for their charm, but they're terrible for their gossip. And so imagine, you see a young woman, we talked about this morning, she's all dolled up, wearing her fancy dress, hair done, makeup done, jewelry in. And you see at the crack of dawn, this woman is sneaking away from Boaz, where Boaz was sleeping. What, what, what's the conclusion you're going to make? You're going to whoop. Boaz, yep. Take the girl out of Moab. You can't get the Moab out of the girl. So he says, look, let's protect your reputation. Let's protect my reputation. Let's, let's sort this out. And so he says, bring a garment that you're wearing and, and hold it out. And she held out, put six measures of barley and put it on her and she went into the city. It's a lot of barley, but it's a gesture of love. It lets people know that there was nothing... Uh, unsavory or untoward going she was there she, uh, and he was providing for her and it's not like you know so don't be thinking oh, he threw some cornflakes at her all right but but there's this ca- there's this big load of, of grain it's, it's a, a barley it's a gesture of love and whenever when she came to her mother-in-law she said how did you fare my daughter well how'd it go then she told her all that the man had done for her saying these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That's big. Remember at the end of chapter one, uh, Naomi came back from Moab. She's heartbroken. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for God is dealt bitterly with me. For I went out full and I have come back empty-handed. That's what she was saying. I came back empty-handed. And so Boaz says, take this barley that she will no longer be empty-handed. Here is a visible blessing. The days of emptiness are gone because I, the Redeemer, am on the case. I'm working on it. And if this deals go through and we get married, I'm going to take care of you, Ruth, but I'm also going to take care of your mother-in-law. And she is, uh, my love extends to her as well. She's not going to miss out. I'm going to look after her as well. She doesn't need to worry about being empty anymore. Beautiful picture. And so the last verse in the chapter, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. One of the worst things to do in the world is wait. I am a, I'm a very impatient person. I, I'm not very good at waiting. Let me work. Let me footer at something. But I'm not very good at waiting. But it's interesting here that that's Naomi's advice. Okay, Ruth, the work of redemption is his alone to do. You can't add anything to this now. You've asked him to redeem you. Your part is done. All you can do is ask. You need now to sit back and we have to let him do the work of redemption because it's his work now. It's a great picture of Christ as we finish this. He said in his prayer in John 17, I have come to do my Father's work and to finish it. He said on the cross, it is finished. The work of redemption is his alone. It's what he does. You can't add to it. You can't earn it. You've got nothing to contribute. We have to simply ask for redemption and then allow the work of Jesus to take place. The song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has washed it white as snow. 
It's his work. It's a finished work. So many religious systems say you have to earn the right to get into heaven. It says, oh yes, Jesus did a great job, but you need to make sure you tick these boxes. You need to make sure that you're so good or so good, you're, you're at church enough times or, you, or you, you get christened or you get baptized or, or you tithe. A lot of people want to make sure that they tithe or whatever it happens to be. But that's not in the Bible. It's all about the work of Christ. Uh, it's all about the cross. Re- read the first eight chapters of Romans or, or read the book of Galatians. And I'll tell you time and time again, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We do not work so that we are saved. Rather, when we are saved, we will work. Jesus said, it's by their fruit that you will know them. See, there's this natural outflowing, this change that we talked about at the start from Romans that happens on the inside that then is reflected on the outside. Because the, a changed life is the result of redemption, not the cause of redemption. Charles Spurgeon wrote, It is not thy hold on Christ that saves, but Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves you, but Christ. It is not thy faith in Christ that saves, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. Folks, you're in church tonight for one of two reasons, I reckon. Either you have gladly received grace and mercy from the Lord and and you're living that life that flows out of what it means to be saved. Or you are in church and for maybe various other reasons or whatever, but you're still trying to earn it yourself by being good enough. And I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say, I bet you're miserable. I bet you're hating it. Because what's happening is you're denying yourself all the fun that living in the world offers you, and you're not getting any of the joy that living for the Lord promises you. And you've got neither. You're lost in the middle, and you're miserable, because all you've got is religion. Religion's terrible. Can I advise you to listen to Naomi's words as we finish? Stop working. Stop trying. Stop trying to please God. Stop trying to earn His favor. You can't add to the process beyond simply asking, coming and saying, Lord, redeem me. I need this. I need this life that you're offering. I need this life that you could promise. The work is done. It's finished. Rest in that tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Ruth and what it it teaches us. Uh, And Lord, we thank you for the insights that it gives us in in our relationships with with, uh, each other and with the people around us. We've been uh, shown time and time again all the things that we can do and all the things that uh, you inspire in us. And so, Lord, we pray that it would, it would be real. It wouldn't just be pretend on the, on the outside, but real on the inside and then just flowing out of us. Lord, people will be able to fool me easily enough. We can fool each other all day long. But nobody's fooling you. And so, Lord, as we sit here in your presence, Lord, expose those who are faking it that they might come now and see the reality of it as they wait on you as they trust in you the Redeemer we ask this in your name Amen